0: You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Hello, and welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. Today is... July 22nd, 2021. It is a Thursday. This is episode 105 of season three, episode 170 of this podcast. Today we're going to talk about Kevin DeYoung's review from April 22nd of Reparations, a Christian Call for Repentance and Renewal. And it's odd doing a review of a review if you will but I think it's important to talk about how it is that we engage these kinds of materials in the church especially how gracious do we be are we in fact being gracious when we speak well of someone or something which is having a corrupting influence do we need to do that those are questions that I've been wrestling with with regards to De Young's recent review, especially here lately, because I am critical of it. I don't think that he did as fine a job on the front end of this article as he could have. It smacks of flattery a little bit, but I'll read through some of what it actually says, and you can see what I'm talking about, maybe, unless, again... I'm mistaken, and that's always a possibility. But before we get into talking about the Kevin DeYoung piece in depth, I'd like to tell you about the conversation we had around the dinner table last night. So, in my house, I have seven children, the youngest being three, unless you count the unborn child growing in my wife's womb set to debut in January of 2022. The youngest one is John at three years old. He's just now learning to have extended conversations back and forth, and it's really great. The older ones, Enoch, five, Evelyn, seven, Daniel, 10, Solomon, 11, Eli, 13, Josiah, 14, almost. He'll be 14, I guess, actually next week. But everybody else seems to have somebody that they are thinking is kind of cute right now or that they're interested in right now. All of my older sons seem to have somebody, and I won't mention names, they seem to have somebody who has caught their eye, whose eye they have caught, and my daughter as well, at least has a boy that she has a crush on. And it occurred to me yesterday that we need to have a conversation as a family and talk about where we're at on these things, not so much the specifics of who likes who, but you guys need to have a good attitude about this, and it needs to not get carried away. You know, even my oldest son at 14, hey, you're 14. You need to keep in view how far away from being old enough to start a family and get married you are. And I'm not worried about him. He's level-headed and he's not getting ahead of himself. But the younger ones, some of them, it's like, hey, just keep in mind, bear in mind, you're this old, you've got a lot of years before you're going to be mature enough to where you could really think seriously about making that commitment in real time instead of hypothetically. So in the meantime, you guys have a crush on some boy or girl, but I don't want us to use that term, crush. What does that even mean, right? What, what does it mean to have a, a crush on somebody, Can somebody give me the etymology on that? Let's say that you're just interested in that person. They've caught your eye. You think they're cute or you're attracted to them or you like each other. However you want to put it, in your mom's and my minds, you're not ready to date and you're not ready to be getting too, too serious until you're ready to get married if that's what God wills, if that's what he reveals by his spirit that he has for you as this person for the rest of your life, then you're old enough to quote-unquote date. But even dating, we have a, a bit of a different view on dating. We don't think that you should be treating somebody either now or in the future as a pastime or as a entertainment source you know some kids in the neighborhood show up knock on our door hey can you come out and ride bikes we're bored well wait a second you know I don't really want us to be hanging out with anybody and everybody just because they're bored you know my daughter some young boy comes by and says hey can I take your daughter out to a movie in 10 years uh why why what's your interest in my daughter why do you want to take my daughter out to a movie. Well, I don't know. It just sounds like fun and, you know, I'm kind of bored. I don't have I don't have anything better to do. If it's me, 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 I, 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 you know, and there's nothing in there about how this is in my daughter's best interest, then maybe take a hike. I don't know. But I don't want us to be falling into doing and thinking and acting and mindlessly following whatever it is that the culture is doing. I think that an older fashioned way of approaching this would be sensible and I think it's workable and I think it's safer and I think it's wise to weigh and measure how's that working for us that we do the dating thing and boys and girls just do whatever and how's that working for us Uh, I think we should be more intentional about it so had a conversation with my kids last night it went well and just said hey Let's be let's be kind, considerate of one another, of whoever it is that you're interested in, of their family, of you know. If this works out, you got to be kind and of considerate of you know that possibility. Because you, they, I mean, if you do harm or you do damage, it could be with you for a long, long time. Or if it doesn't work out, if they end up with somebody else, then there's no sense in making uh, you know much ado about something that won't be. You know What will be will be. God willing, we live and do this or that. But enough about that story. Just wanted to tell you that in passing before we jump into the weighty matter of reparations for slavery as a way of warming up. But starting off, Kevin DeYoung's piece, he writes, Reparations, a Christian call for repentance and renewal. Brazos Press is a new book by Duke Kwan, a PCA pastor in Washington, D.C., and Greg Thompson, a former PCA pastor previously serving a church in Charlottesville, Virginia, who now leads a number of initiatives related to race and racism in America. Reparations is a bold work calling for nothing less than for the language of white supremacy and reparations to be fixed, quote unquote, fixed in the church's imagination and fundamental to its vocation. In simple terms, the problem is white supremacy, and the answer is reparations restitution for what has been taken and restoration unto wholeness. Reparations is the cry of the ages and the call of the church. With only 200 pages of text and over 30 pages of endnotes, Quan and Thompson have written a book that is both accessible and academic. The writing is clear and excellently organized. Quan and Thompson have a knack for breaking down complex ideas into helpful categories. For example, they argue that racism can be understood in four ways as personal, with the need for repentance, as relational, with the need for reconciliation, as institutional, with the need for reform, or cultural, with the need for repair. There are more lists and rubrics like this throughout the book, many of them insightful and useful. Kwan and Thompson are also to be commended for avoiding the history as screed template. The tone is strong at times, but never incensed. If readers have only viewed American history with rose-colored glasses, they will be helped to see the uncomfortable truth that racism in America has been far too pervasive and that the white church, with some noble exceptions mentioned in the book, has far too often been part of the problem instead of the solution. The authors have plenty of criticism for white Americans and for the white church in America, but they want to persuade, not merely scold. To that end, they have put forward the most compact and most learned Christian defense of reparations to date." Well written and thoughtfully presented, this is an important book that deserves to be taken seriously. Okay, so that is the first section of this long review. And when I say long review, I was curious just how long it actually is. It's 19 pages in a Word document. It's nearly 6,000 words. And that is very long for a book review, in my opinion. Now, Given the fact that this is a very weighty matter, very consequential, it has a lot of implications one way or the other. If they're correct, that this needs to be central and fixed in the church's imagination and fundamental to its vocation, then we really need to persuade ourselves of this paradigm shift. If they are incorrect, then we really need to deal comprehensively with why they are incorrect so that we not only safeguard our own hearts from being led astray, but we also maybe, by God's grace, persuade them that they've been in error and they need to repent of that. So nearly 6,000 words copied and pasted into a Word document. That's the first section of this review. And let me just ask you a question. Having read that far and no further just yet. If you haven't read the entire piece, which I would advise you to, do you get the impression that Kevin DeYoung is concerned about this book? That he is worried? Do you feel like this is a warning? Speaking for myself, turning the question into an answer, I don't. I mean, the beginning of this review gives them. Compliment after compliment after compliment. And perhaps that's strategic and perhaps that's necessary. Perhaps that's just Kevin DeYoung's personality and he can't help but be paying compliments wherever possible, especially if he's about to drop the hammer. But I call it a personal preference, personal opinion, personal judgment, gut feeling. I think this was the wrong way to open this review. And it sets... The wrong expectation. Somebody who gets busy and distracted and they only read the beginning of this article has no clue that after that first 360 words, there is a concern that they should take seriously. Their first 360 words primes and conditions them to think they should read this book and this is important. And No more. If they just stop there and they jump right into reading the book, I'm just, I'm concerned. So anyway, enough about that. I don't want to belabor the point. Moving into the next section, critical engagement. Now begins Kevin DeYoung unpacking what his concerns are. First sentence in the second section. It is also a book with which I have profound disagreements. Okay, there we go very clear, very concise, very direct. You could say, hey, let's, you know, what's 360 words between us and that sentence? What, you know, what's the big concern? Well, the big concern is that you're cushioning it too much. Right? I'm sorry, I'm going to I am going to go back to this. I it is a, it, it is an important thing. It's one thing to be polite. It's one thing to be gracious. But in the current climate with cancel culture, with the woke brand of doctrinal rigidity when it comes to progressive politics being infused into our theology and all of our conversations and all of our interactions and all of our curriculum and all of our cultural expressions, everything, absolutely everything has got to be dogmatically examined in that climate when somebody is going to be critical of a book arguing for reparations and they start out with compliment after compliment after compliment, I just worry that that is a little bit of pandering or flattery. And I think that the risk run by potentially flattering, potentially giving people the wrong impression on the front end, I think that that risk is not uh, worth taking just so we can say we're being gracious. I think it would have been better off to, by and large, trim down that first 360 words and jump right into the critical engagement. But, again, let's move on. Reparations is a far-reaching indictment of American history and life in America as it exists today. Kwan and Thompson are right to show us the failures in our national history and in our churches. What's more debatable is whether racism and white supremacy are embedded in every institution and encoded in every aspect of our society. One can be honest about our nation's sins and shortcomings while still insisting that America wasn't founded on white supremacy. Likewise, one can question whether white supremacy, with the images of Klansmen and neo-Nazis it conjures up, is the best term to describe the whole warp and woof of American history, especially when heroes like Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr. often appealed to the founders and their ideals. Now, we'll stop right there. Footnote, remember this moment because Kwan and Thompson object and slam DeYoung for having made that claim he just made about Frederick Douglass and Martin Luther King Jr., appealing to the founders and their ideals. They slam him for that. They are twisting the claim that he's making into something he didn't say and then trying to beat that straw man to death and take a victory lap. And what DeYoung just said is correct. That's absolutely correct. Frederick Douglass, Martin Luther King Jr., they did appeal to the founders and their ideals. They didn't get up trying to repudiate uh, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were calling Americans to a more faithful fulfillment of these stated ideals. And insofar as they did that, the reason why we remember their names and they weren't shot is because America is not inherently a white supremacist nation. If America was inherently a white supremacist nation, Frederick Douglass And Martin Luther King Jr. wouldn't have never gotten off the ground. They wouldn't have been able to get anywhere. It wasn't just a little bit of white people who, every now and then, like one in a thousand, listened to them. It was a lot of white people who listened to Frederick Douglass and to Martin Luther King Jr. But anyway, let's move on. As a point of historical fact, it also bears mentioning that Quan and Thompson wrongly assert, and this is important. Wrongly assert that 12 million human beings were caught in the slave trade between the 15th and 19th centuries in America, when the total number of slaves brought to America was just over 300,000, with the vast majority going to Brazil and to the Caribbean. They appear to have interpreted in, uh, Orlando Patterson's estimate of enslaved Africans brought to the New World as a statement about America only. None of this is to downplay. The horror and the injustice of the transatlantic slave trade slavery isn't less horrible for having gone to other countries besides America, but misstating a historical number by a factor of 40 is worth noting. Okay, understated, Kevin DeYoung. Sorry, I, I am critiquing Kevin DeYoung's critique here, but very understated. It is an understatement to say the least that inflating a historical number by a factor of 40 is worth noting. He has to lead in with a lot of qualifications here because he anticipates it every turn. Every single pushback he levels at reparations, this book by Quana Thompson, every single pushback is going to be met with accusations that he's trying to minimize, he's trying to legitimize, he's trying to downplay, he's trying to excuse. And so at every single turn, he's got to race his critic, race his opponent to the punchline and assure everyone, all parties concerned, that no, I'm not downplaying the horror and injustice of the transatlantic slave trade. Slavery isn't less horrible for having gone to other countries besides America. Okay? And and what's remarkable is despite doing this throughout nearly 6,000 words, Quan and Thompson still come back just a few days ago when they write their response at thefrontporch.org. They come back and they savage Kevin DeYoung as using white supremacist methodology in his review of their book. Moving on, we're almost halfway through this second section. Kevin DeYoung writes, But I don't want to provide a historical analysis of reparations neither do I want to focus on the sociological and economic claims of the book, though underlying the book's criticisms are the unstated convictions that racial disparities are obvious signs of culturally embedded racism and that Western capitalism is a white supremacist system of extraction that harms the poor. That is, by the way, the sum total of critical race theory right there. He's It's another way of saying, without coming right out and saying it directly because it'll trigger people, it's another way of saying this book is predicated on critical race theory, folks. The whole assumption, the whole house of cards, is based on critical race theory and the idea of systemic racism as being a current problem in America right now, today. Kevin DeYoung writes, Instead, I want to provide a theological assessment of the book's theological claims. For at the heart of reparations is a moral argument, indeed, a Christian argument about justice. Reparations, according to Quan and Thompson, is best understood as the deliberate repair of white supremacy's cultural theft through restitution, returning what one wrongfully took, and restoration, restoring the wrong to wholeness. Consequently, reparations are not primarily given in light of a hoped-for future. They are given in light of an actual past. In other words, reparations are about what we owe and what is due. Quan and Thompson call the Christian church in America to embrace reparations as central to faithful Christian mission in this culture. This is the key theological and ethical claim, one that I find ultimately ambiguous, unworkable, and unpersuasive. Okay, so now that is section two of de Young's Review of reparations, and I think this is interesting. It's it's something Quan and Thompson will criticize the Young for doing. It's a again a strategic decision that he makes to somewhat sidestep, with the exception of correcting their inflation of the number of Black Africans who were brought to America as slaves, or brought to the New World as slaves. I should say, with the exception of that. He starts off the second section, second paragraph of his review saying, I don't want to provide a historical analysis nor focus on the sociological and economic claims of the books. What he wants to do is he wants to do a theological review. Here's my question. Why pick and choose? It should be first and foremost a theological treatment of this book as a pastor, as a Christian But you can't have it only be a theological review in the abstract. You have to reckon with the historical claims that are being made, and are they true or false? You have to reckon with the sociological and economic claims of the book and whether they are true or false. Is the underlying premise correct? And if you sidestep that, it implies that you're not taking this seriously, that you don't think that this is as weighty a matter as it possibly could be. And it also implies that the scriptures are silent on these things. To say that we're going to give this a theological treatment implies that the scriptures don't have a lot to say about how we distinguish between these historical accounts, competing historical accounts. For instance, when was this country founded? was it founded in 1776 or was it founded in 1619, right? You can't sidestep the theological when you're doing the historical and sociological and economic treatment of this issue. You can't downplay the theological and elevate your critical race theory, critical theory, Marxist presuppositions opinion of what should happen next and sprinkle in some Jesus, Jesus, Jesus talk. But you also don't correct that faulty way of reasoning and coming to this conclusion like Quan and Thompson do. You don't correct that best by just doing the opposite, by just inverting it, okay? I'm going to de-emphasize the historical analysis, sociological, economic claims of the book, dealing with those, treating those in favor of dealing with the theology, I think you have to do all of the above and I think that that's difficult. I think that's hard to do, but I think that it's needful, it's necessary. We have to do that if we're going to effectively deal with this. It's just like Masala is asked at the beginning of the movie Ben-Hur, the right version of the movie starring Charlton Heston, he's asked. How do you fight an idea? Referring to the rebellious Jews in Palestine under Roman occupation. How do you fight an idea? And Masala's answer is, I'll tell you. You ask how to fight an idea, I'll tell you how to fight an idea with another idea. And it isn't enough for us to have only a theological answer to a theological question or a theological response to a theological claim and to have a better theology, it isn't enough to have theology in the abstract where there's a kind of separation of church and state and we don't get into the sciences. And I don't want to presume too much about Kevin DeYoung. I'm just speaking in general right now, something I see very, very common. I've bumped up against it in years and years of writing and podcasting and talking with people. By and large, we are not trained in American Culture by the church, in the church, as Christians, to reckon with economics, politics, philosophy, art, culture, science. We are not teaching ourselves to reckon with these things in deep, meaningful ways because a lot of the church wants to focus on the gospel and theology and the spiritual, all the while somehow missing the forest for the trees, that there is some truth to the claims of Quan and Thompson, the presuppositional claims that the Bible speaks to these matters. Now they're mistaken, badly mistaken, in their conclusions from reading the text. They're eisegeting, they're getting these bad ideas, these Marxist ideas from outside of the Bible, and then reading those bad ideas into the Bible as a way of trying to curry favor with the world, with Black Lives Matter, with Antifa, with Democrats, with squishy Republicans who just want peace so they can live their best life now. But there is some validity to the underlying claim that the Bible does speak to these things. And anyway, moving on. Kevin DeYoung writes, I want to provide a theological assessment of the book's theological claims, for at the heart of reparations is a moral argument, indeed a Christian argument about justice. Reparations, according to Quan and Thompson, is best understood as the deliberate repair of white supremacy's cultural theft through restitution, returning what one wrongfully took, and restoration, restoring the wrong to wholeness. Consequently, reparations are not primarily given in light of a hoped-for future, they are given in light of an actual past. In other words, reparations are about what we owe and what is due. Quan and Thompson called the Christian church in America to embrace reparations as central to faithful Christian mission in this culture. Pay attention to that word, central, central, big deal, major deal, central to faithful Christian mission in this culture. This is the key theological, and ethical claim, one that I find ultimately ambiguous, unworkable, and unpersuasive. Quite right. Section three, restitution. Kevin DeYoung writes, when people hear reparations, they usually think of compensation for past injustices, some sort of redress for crimes committed. Reparations is the act of making amends, of giving satisfaction for wrongs or injuries. Quan and Thompson begin and end the book with the story of the former slave Jordan Anderson and the famous letter he wrote to his former master asking for his wages for 32 years of service. In effect, Anderson's letter says quite powerfully, you've defrauded me all these years. Now you want me to come back and live with you and believe you will treat me kindly. Give me back all that you stole and then I'll take your gesture of goodwill seriously. Quan and Thompson framed the book with this story to help us see that reparations is about returning what has been stolen. They write early in the book, when you take something that does not belong to you, love requires you to return it. This theme shows up most clearly in their chapter on restitution. Their anchor text is the story of Zacchaeus from Luke 19. When Zacchaeus had his heart changed, he didn't just pray a prayer or say he was sorry for cheating people. He showed his repentance by making restitution. Quan and Thompson rightly summarized the basic lesson of Zacchaeus. If you steal something, you have to give it back with an impressive array of citations from well-respected theologians throughout the ages. Quana Thompson remind us that true repentance is not found in words alone. Generations of readers of scriptures across church history they argue, have repeatedly affirmed restitution as an enduring Christian responsibility and a foundational expression of God's unchanging moral law. All of that is why good, biblical, true, and necessary. The problems come when Quan and Thompson apply the straightforward principle of restitution. In their words, quote, when you take something that does not belong to you, love requires you to return it, end quote, and apply it to an evil as far off as slavery or a sin as nebulous as white supremacy. For example, After referencing a 1715 pamphlet condemning slavery and calling for blacks to be restored out of the property of him that hath wronged them, Quan and Thompson conclude that restitution for the thefts of white supremacy is an old idea. But that's not exactly true. What is an old idea is for masters to release their slaves and to make reparations for the wrongs they had committed against them. Throughout the history of this country, people have written rightfully and forcefully of the Christian duty to repay what one has stolen To make restitution for wrongs done to the slaves and to return what had been forcefully taken from another. There is no talk, however, about something as amorphous as restitution for quote unquote white supremacy. Absolutely right. Well said. Well said. This is a bit of a shell game where Quan and Thompson make quote, 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 quote. You get distracted by the shiny object and then they introduce a brand new premise all the while claiming that the evidence that they just paraded for you supports and proves this new premise that they've just introduced. You're not supposed to catch the sleight of hand there as they slip in something that wasn't being talked about or even addressed in the quotes or in the pieces of evidence that they just presented to you. This idea of making restitution for, as they define it, white supremacy, which according to their response to Kevin DeYoung can be literally everything. This review that I'm reading for you right now, according to Quan and Thompson, is white supremacy, right? the, The definition is so broad, so nebulous, so amorphous, so anything you want it to be that even Kevin DeYoung's critique of their book they say, is white supremacy. And reparations, in light of that context, with that as the subscript, reparations are ridiculous. It's not that people who disagree with you are wrong, and here's why, X, Y, Z, and specifically let's address the theological claim that you're making here, No, 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 no. We can't help ourselves. We have to claim that you're a racist methodologically. You're a racist supporter. You're an enabler of racists and white supremacists. And please, you know, come to Jesus, Kevin DeYoung, and his readers who agreed with his piece generally. Come to Jesus because you might not even really actually truly be a Christian. Maybe kind of sort of, oof. Moving on, later in the same chapter, Quan and Thompson cite a petition from enslaved Christians demanding compensation for their, quote, long bondage and hard slavery, end quote. Quan and Thompson summarize, in other words, they sought restitution for white supremacist theft. It may seem like splitting hairs, but the language matters. Restitution makes perfect sense and is eminently biblical. When the person who cheated pays back, the person whom they cheated, Zacchaeus, did not make restitution with the world or with every poor person in Judea. Instead, he sought to restore fourfold according to Exodus 22, one, anyone he defrauded, Luke 19.8. Slavery may have been undergirded by and helped perpetuate assumptions of white superiority, but to say that restitution for the theft of white supremacy is an old idea is to smuggle back into the past the notion that restitution might be based on skin color or based on wrong attitudes or based on something as amorphous as participating in certain systems and structures. <sighs> Did you catch all that? Take a time machine, go back in time, Slip your premise of the present into the historical record, then travel back to the present again and argue your case and say, "Ah, see, this proves it." Oh, wait a second! No, 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 no. Th- this is why the the way that the left interprets documents and interprets literally everything, apart from objective reality. And the conviction of a transcendent fixed truth and standard that is above all of us is so dangerous. This is why subjectivism is so dangerous. This is why emotivism is so dangerous. Because we stop being able both to, as the authors of a book like Reparations, read the historical account for what it actually says instead of what we feel when we read it. And also, when we read books like reparations, we're not very good, unless somebody like Kevin DeYoung comes along and very intentionally pulls on these threads for us, we're not very good at thinking critically about it and saying, well, wait a second, is that really what the author intended originally when they wrote that, when they said that, when they did that? You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means, as Inigo Montoya says, and The Princess Bride. Continuing on, the concept of white supremacy does a lot of heavy lifting throughout the book. Yeah, I like that line actually. That's a really great line. The concept of white supremacy does a lot of heavy lifting throughout the book. That should be the headline. That should be the intro, like first paragraph of this review in my humble opinion. Take out the fluff and the potential flattery Just lead in with this, get right to the point. The concept of white supremacy does a lot of heavy lifting throughout the book. For Kwan and Thompson, white supremacy is the evil that has been essential to America's past and remains inescapable in the present. One could question, however, whether the category obscures more than it illuminates. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. To be sure, very few white Americans prior to the civil rights movement held views about black Americans that we would consider acceptable today. We should not gloss over this sad history. Insofar as white supremacy entails believing and acting as if your racial or ethnic identity makes you superior to others, it should be repudiated wherever it is found. And yet, when white supremacy covers everything from the horrors of slavery and lynching to the more common blind spots of self-centeredness and indifference, the result is that little little effort is made to understand people in their own time and on their own terms. Moreover, the category of white supremacy as a totalizing heuristic device often lacks basic Christian charity insofar as it measures people's churches and nations by their worst failures as we see them and pathologizes everyone and everything associated with the sin of partiality as being complicit with the most egregious catalog of sins in our nation's history. Okay. So, I I will be a little bit critical once again here because... Yes, white supremacy is faulty. It is a faulty, you know, properly defined, more narrowly defined than just everything I hate is white supremacy. It isn't just a problem of defining the term narrowly enough, and then we can all agree about how big of a problem white supremacy is. Okay. Even properly defined white supremacy is not the boogeyman, catch-all, junk drawer, throw all of the problems of the world into it, and voila, you've just explained it. You know, this is <laughs> this is the way to make it all better. Uh, white supremacy, even properly defined, is not the unforgivable sin, the be-all, end-all, worst thing, according to God's Word. Even if you're just talking in the abstract about racism in general, ethnocentrism in general, there's plenty of ethnocentrism in the Bible. It usually takes the form of God's people, Israel, the children of Israel, the Jews, being separate and distinct by God's command from the people surrounding them because the people surrounding them don't worship and serve God. God commands the children of Israel to be separate, to not intermarry, to not worship the gods of the nations around them. It has nothing to do first and foremost with the Jews and the children of Israel being inherently superior in and of themselves, self-righteous. It has everything to do with be holy for I am holy. And as that continues on into the New Testament, famously you've got the Judaizers coming to Antioch, and we read about it from Paul, in Galatians, the Judaizers claiming that essentially, long and short of it, if the new Gentile believers in Jesus wanted to become Christians, they had to become Jews, essentially. You, you want to be a Christian, you can't actually be saved by faith, by grace. You have to add works in. You have to get circumcised. If you're not circumcised men, you can't actually be a Christian because you're not being obedient to the law. And Paul takes that extremely seriously. Here's a quick test, and this is what I'm really getting at. I'm not just quibbling about Kevin DeYoung's tone at the beginning here for the sake of quibbling about his tone. I don't see the Apostle Paul addressing the Judaizers. I don't see some of the early church fathers, ancient Christian leaders, like Augustine, like Eusebius. I don't see them addressing critics in the same tone and tenor as Kevin DeYoung starts off his book here, congratulating Quan and Thompson. And I think that insofar as they don't set that example, they're correct, and we don't need to be more gracious, more flattering of opponents to sound doctrine in our day than they were. But white supremacy, just like the Judaizers religion, wherein you say in order to really truly be saved, you have to become Jewish for all intents and purposes. In our day, that might take the form of, hey, in order to really truly be a Christian, you have to become a white person, or as close as possible, as close as you can possibly get. You'll never quite be there, black, brown, yellow people. You'll never quite be a white person, but Give it your best shot, right? Okay, our response to people who act like that, who talk like that, should be exactly the response that the Apostle Paul gives to the Judaizers, in my opinion, in my strongly held opinion. And yet, somebody just having some faulty assumptions, some mistaken, misplaced self-pride, self-righteousness by virtue of their being white, just like somebody having that by virtue of their being black or by virtue of their being Chinese or that by virtue of their being Middle Eastern or by virtue of being whatever ethnos they are, thinking that they're inherently superior to everybody, that's not so good. That's not so good. But is it the cardinal sin? Is it the be-all, end-all in even the narrowest, most precise definition? Not so sure. Not so fast. Let's be careful there. Let's not accept that premise as we're trying to negotiate down the broad claims of Quan and Thompson here. Moving on in De Young's review. The language Quan and Thompson use with reference to Zacchaeus is also telling, quote, "Acknowledging that he as a tax collector, stood at the center of an extractive system designed to plunder the most vulnerable members of society, Zacchaeus offers half of his possessions to the poor, end quote, "True." Zacchaeus generously gave away half of his possessions to the poor in addition to making restitution for those he sinned against. But did he really acknowledge complicity in an extractive system designed to plunder the most vulnerable members of society? If he felt complicit in the whole system of tax collecting, why do we have no record of him leaving the profession? Why did Jesus show kindness to tax collectors, even calling one to be his disciple without ever commanding them to leave their extractive system behind when the tax collectors come To John the Baptist to be baptized and ask, what shall we do? John does not reprimand them for being part of a system designed to plunder the poor. He tells them much more simply, collect no more than you are authorized to do, Luke 3.13. Similarly, neither John the Baptist nor Jesus ever castigated Roman soldiers for being complicit in an imperial system designed to maintain Rome's control over subjugated peoples. Instead, John told them to stop cheating, Stop threatening, stop lying, and be content with their wages. Luke 3.14 With tax collectors and soldiers throughout the Gospels, there is no talk of restitution for imperial supremacy or extractive systems, nor any summons to dismantle the structures they inhabited. Just the straightforward command to live a godly life, be generous to others, and repay what you have stolen. (laughs) So, this is at the center. This is what it really all comes down to. Believe it or not, this is where we find the actual motivations behind critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, accusations of systemic racism, books written about how reparations should be central to the Christian life and practice, Christian doctrine, Christian teaching in America, or else we may be not actually Christians. This is where we get down to brass tacks. Rubber meets the road. What is this all about? It's about dismantling the quote-unquote extractive system. The language being used here, if Kevin DeYoung knows, he is afraid to come right out and say it with reason, but with reasons that I disagree with. If Kevin DeYoung does not know, I think that demonstrates the peril in preferring to deal with the theological claims without dealing with the economic, historical, and cultural framework. You don't know what it is that you're really up against unless you're willing to peel back the curtain and study this for what it is. What this is, is cultural Marxism. This is Antonio Gramsci, as Bakum points out. This is Antonio Gramsci saying in no uncertain terms that America will not embrace communism over and against capitalism unless we take over the cultural institutions in America and use them to punch the capitalist system in the nose over and over and over again, over time, over generations. It's the only way you're going to do it. And reparations by Quan and Thompson is two PCA pastors coming from university and public life, having been infected with this Marxist ideology, then having married that Marxist ideology to Christian teaching, to make inroads in the church in America for cultural Marxism. You can basically sum up reparations as Marxism, plain and simple, down with the capitalist free market system, which is inherently unjust because it produces inequity. And if we were all the same skin color, if we were all the same ethnicity, the central claim would just shift to some other basis, which more explicitly has to do with rich versus poor. This is class warfare. And insofar as there is economic disparity between black Americans and white Americans, just like there's economic disparity between Latino Americans and black Americans, between Asian Americans and black Americans, between Asian Americans and white Americans, between Latinos and Asians, between Latinos and whites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Because culture does matter, because values do matter, because traditions do matter, because how we organize ourselves and how we organize our families and our communities, how we train up our children how we approach work and life and education do matter culturally. If we didn't have the white versus black dynamic for cultural Marxists to latch on to, they would have to more nakedly adopt the Marxist language, which we're so much more familiar with. And then we would see this for what it is instead of being so terrified of being called racists. See, that's the trick. They want to put us all on the horns of a dilemma, put us off balance, so that in our confusion, they carry out a blitzkrieg on all our institutions academia, business, sports, politics, faith. I want to skip down because I'm running out of time here and I need to get to work, get my last day of training. Alan Bradley this morning. Let's read through the last section of De Young's response. And I'm skipping several pages in between. Eschatology. Quote: It has become commonplace among conservatives to claim that anti-racism or social justice or wokeness is becoming a kind of surrogate religion. I certainly don't believe Kwan and Thompson are meaning to replace Christianity with a religion of anti-racism or the like. Indeed, they are to be commended for digging deeply into the Christian tradition, especially in their chapters on restitution and restoration. Quan and Thompson write out an obvious love for the church and a desire to see her walk in faithfulness and integrity. Okay, here again. This is a tone which is aiming possibly at being gracious, at being kind, at disarming opponents who otherwise have knives out, Verges on flattery and I think at a minimum it is confusing for people who are in the middle who don't study these things Who don't understand really what it is that they're dealing with and it might also imply that Kevin DeYoung himself Doesn't fully understand what it is that he's dealing with what it is that he's addressing as he prefers to Confront the theological claims But At the same time Next paragraph At the same time, the moral vision in the book draws from the Christian tradition more than it is defined by the Christian story. Too subtle, but true. Too subtle, but true. They're using the history of Christianity and they're not being defined by the character of the Christian story. This is not clear enough. It's not direct enough. It's not punchy enough, but it is true. That is to say, while Quan and Thompson pay careful attention to Christian theologians and Christian scriptures, the shape and telos of the book's argument is not clearly shaped by the gospel. To be fair, Quan and Thompson talk about how restoration mirrors God's generosity. I'm not suggesting they don't believe the gospel or that their book does not spring forth from a desire to love others as God has loved us. What I mean is that the call to reparations is largely about following God's example. There is not a clear picture of how those complicit in the theft of white supremacy, either because of wrongdoing in their personal lives or simply by virtue of their corporate identity as whites, can find full freedom and forgiveness for their sins. Why is that a minor point? Why, why, why treat that like that's a minor point? That's not a minor point. That's a major problem. And why would you say that? And also assure us you have no doubts or reservations about the genuineness of Quan and Thompson's faith. I just, that that boggles my mind. How do those two things go together? I'm sure they're very sincerely Christians who embrace the gospel. It just doesn't come through at all in 200 pages plus of talk about reparations and castigating white Americans. And there's there's no gospel in this. Okay, weird. Got it. The book certainly talks about sin and redemption, but redemption is found through reparations, and the sin that poisons everything is white supremacy. White supremacy, the author's right, is incalculable in its harm. It is not just a social system, but a spiritual sickness, a way of being human that poisons everything it touches, minds, hearts, bodies, cities, worlds, reviews of books called reparations. Uh, White supremacy is an account of the world, and once you have eyes to see, You will see it everywhere, in speeches, in statues, in our practices, and in the habits of our hearts. White supremacy is a social order driven by the pathology of its own omnipotence, whose destinarian ambitions to control the world amounted to little more than the metastasization of vice. With language like this, it is not hard to see how white supremacy functions like a new kind of original sin. Why, Why cushion that, right? Why let them fall? on a mountain of pillows instead of letting them hit the cold hard ground. Right? You you see what I mean here? With language like this, it is not hard to see how white supremacy functions like a new kind of original sin. No, 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 no. It is. That is the function. Say it clearly. Say it direct. The time is long past when we could treat this with kid gloves and we could take our dear sweet time be clear and direct this is wrecking people's lives in real time whether they embrace it or they're on the receiving end of corporations institutions family friends who have embraced this this is wrecking people's lives wrecking churches in real time don't softball this don't t-ball this And with this new kind of original sin comes a new kind of salvation. The concluding chapter ends with a beatific vision, except it is not a vision of blacks and whites around the throne of grace. It is not a vision of our blood-bought unity in Christ and our spirit-led obedience to Christ. It is not a vision of the power of the gospel to bring sinners to repentance and to lead the sinned against to forgiveness. The eschatological vision in, in reparations is about Memphis Claiborne's temple. And I'm going to skip down past some business. He writes about them talking about this church, this abandoned church in Memphis. Skipping down to the very last paragraph. A stirring conclusion to be sure, sermonic, eschatological, and essentially religious, but it is not a beatific vision that depends on Christian categories or the Christian story to be sure it can draw from the Christian tradition insofar as the Christian tradition has a lot to say about restitution and restoration. And yet, the moral arc and the teleological aim do not require a Christian accounting of the world. Suppose American history is as bad as Quan and Thompson ever. Suppose our corporate guilt is everything they say it is. Suppose everything they want to see under the banner of reparations would be good for our country and good for our communities. The religious vision is still one that I find more in line with... Im- community organizers dream for america than a distinctively christian one boom right there in a nutshell the religious vision is still one that i find more in line with a community organizers dream for america than a distinctively christian one it is a vision where sin is white supremacy and salvation comes from a lifetime of moral exertion It is a vision where the church's mission is to change the world and heaven is a world of art studios and co-ops. It is a vision where urban renewal feels central and the grace of the risen Christ feels peripheral. It is a vision filled with many noble aspirations, but one ultimately that depicts a future where the white guilt never dies and the reparations never end. It is a vision filled with many noble aspirations, but one ultimately that depicts a future where the white guilt never dies and the reparations never end. I don't think you can have your cake and eat it too. And the difficult thing here is that the folks who are pushing the woke stuff are rabid dogs. They are not desirous of the little Scooby snacks we want to toss to them in the name of being gracious and kind. It's either or. Either the claims they're making have more to do with community organizing in the church and represent a fundamental repudiation of the gospel, a false gospel, and therefore we should regard these people as false teachers and denounce them as such and remove them from fellowship, call them to repentance clearly, directly, warn everyone to steer clear of them, to not believe them. Either that, or don't make the claims that you do, Kevin DeYoung, at the tail end and in the middle of your review. But I just don't see how it is we can say all these things but stop short of decrying these two men as false teachers. Except we're deathly afraid of being accused of the very thing that even with these cushions in the treatment, Quan and Thompson write their response and do just that. They do exactly that to Kevin DeYoung. They call his methodology white supremacist. His treatment of their book is white supremacy. And then they list the ways. How do I hate thee? Let me count the ways. Boom, 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 boom. boom. I will post a link to this review. You can read it in its entirety without my stopping now and then to critique it. But that's all I've got for this episode. The next episode, I'm hoping, will be dealing with the response from Quan and Thompson. So tune in for that. Hopefully tomorrow morning or Saturday morning at the latest. We'll have that up and then you can listen to both. I think this can teach us a lot as we unpack how do we have these conversations, how do we engage these things. I think we can learn a lot from discussing it, analyzing it, considering how best to answer this challenge in our day. But for now, thank you for listening. As always, until next time, God bless.